Hello, and welcome to the Economic Review. In lieu of the rapidly expanding national debt, it is essential that we take a look at one of the major tenets of the federal budget responsible for a large part of said debt, the welfare state. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson declared a, quote, unconditional war on poverty in America. Over 50 years and $23 trillion later, the poverty rate remains almost identical to what it was in the 60s. In 2018, state and federal governments spent over a trillion dollars on welfare programs, excluding programs such as Medicare and Social Security. In the same year, about 38.1 million people, people were living in poverty. That means that the total amount of money the government spent per person living in poverty in 2018 was well over $26,000. That's double the poverty line and would put a family of four in the top quintile of American households. Clearly, something is very wrong with the war on poverty. Because with the amount of money being spent on welfare, poverty should have been eradicated a long, long time ago. One such example of the failure of the welfare state is public housing. The reason that public housing so commonly fails is because of the type of environment it creates. Public housing often creates communities which have disproportionately higher rates of crime, drugs, and violence. This occurs because the area that surrounds these public housing projects is relatively poor and often disorderly, making their residents statistically more likely to engage in such activities. Everyone receives a check from the government, creating a community-wide crisis of purpose, often fostering disorderly and illegal behavior due to a lack of personal responsibility. Although a considerable amount of money is spent on public housing, the key issue of the disorder of the community is not addressed effectively. What tends to occur is that even more money is allocated to such failed housing projects which serves only to exacerbate the problems further. For, furthermore, it makes it very clear that just throwing money at the problem will not solve anything. What this shows us is that poverty is not inevitable and is entirely avoidable. Government bureaucrats and policymakers assume that people are poor because they, quote, do not have a sufficient amount of money. Therefore, Common sense dictates that to eradicate poverty, all we need to do is simply give them more money. Such an assumption, while it might sound extremely straightforward in theory, is just not workable in practice. Instead, we must address the underlying issues that drive people into poverty in the first place, and what keeps them there. If we can do so, no government handouts would be necessary. There are several factors that are closely associated with poverty, such as education, family composition, and work. Education is closely related to income, and it determines what you are qualified to do. As automation threatens low-skilled jobs, having some sort of marketable skill becomes more and more essential. Unfortunately, many people incorrectly associate skilled labor with a college degree. College is expensive, and many take out large loans that are very difficult to pay back to attend. Additionally, in terms of opportunity costs, it costs those that choose to go to college four years worth of income. 
As we previously explored, 40% of recent college graduates do not work in jobs that require college degrees. What college you attend is also closely related to your earning potential. Graduates of Edward Waters College in Jacksonville, Florida, which costs tens of thousands of dollars per year to attend, make an average of about $26,000 six years after graduation, or about $13 an hour. Nowhere near enough to provide for a family of four, for a family in most parts of the country. Despite this, thousands of people choose to attend this college. As conservatives have been pointing out for years, college is not the only option for higher education that boosts one's earning potential. Becoming an electrician or a plumber does not require a degree and instead usually requires trade school, which is much cheaper or an apprenticeship. The national median income for plumbers and electricians hovers around $55,000, with a lot of room for growth. A master plumber can make around $100,000 a year. That is two to four times the amount that graduates of Edward Waters College make. Getting people out from under this college mentality and into the trades can go a long way towards fighting poverty. And the best part of it is that it's extremely cheap. Put simply, if the government incentivizes people to go into the trades, it can make them self-sufficient very, very quickly, eliminate their dependence on handouts, and do it all at a much, much lower price than going to college. Family composition is also closely associated with poverty. Children from single-parent households are five times more likely to be poor later on as children from two-parent households. The single parenthood rate in the 1960s when the war on poverty was declared was under 10%. That rate today is over 23%, a massive rise in just a few decades. Family composition is also tied to education, as poorly educated parents are more likely to have non-marital births than as compared to better educated ones. As the welfare state provided more benefits to single parents, it also inadvertently incentivized it. The solution here could lie in two parts. Firstly, since education is so closely correlated with non-marital births, improving education levels could automatically bring the single parenthood rate down. Secondly, incentivizing parents to stay together rather than incentivizing them to split apart as the current system does through tax credits and other means could help to reverse the current trend of rising single parenthood rates. Both of these actions put together have the potential to bring the number of non-marital births down and, as a result, alleviate poverty without excessive government handouts. Finally, work is the third factor most closely associated with poverty. Having a full-time job is the best way to ensure that you do not live in poverty. The poverty rate for those who work full-time is only 2.9% compared to 25, 24% for those who do not work at all. A minimum wage job worked 40 hours a week pays well over the poverty line at $15,000, meaning that any full-time job should put a person over the poverty line. Of course, other factors also uh, affect this, such as location and dependent children, but nonetheless, having a full-time job is essential to escaping poverty. As such, merely increasing government handouts is no way to end poverty. Addressing the underlying problems that make people poor in the first place will ensure that people do not fall into poverty. And if they do, 
that they can bring themselves out and become self-sufficient permanently. Additionally, it will do so without costing taxpayers trillions of dollars. While there are certainly factors closely associated with poverty, these differ from place to place and are not the same nationwide. Politicians in Washington, D.C. cannot expect to effectively create blanket welfare programs that can effectively address the different problems faced by people all across the nation. While one state might have a failing education system driving poverty, another might have high crime rates or drug addiction problems that keep people from being productive members of society. The first step towards addressing poverty is realizing that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to poverty, and decentralizing the welfare state accordingly. Putting more power into the hands of state and local governments is key to developing more effective solutions that recognize the different problems individuals face. As the authors of Brutus No. 1 so definitively put it at the founding of our nation, in a large republic, the public good is sacrificed to a thousand views. It is subordinate to exceptions and depends on accidents. In a small one, the interest of the public is easier perceived, better understood, and more within the reach of every citizen. As always, this is where democracy comes in. There are approximately 60 million people that receive welfare, and most of them are voters. A politician that advocates to cut welfare or to make it more dependent on work runs the risk of losing millions of votes. That could cost them the election. A politician is in the business of maintaining power, and the possibility of losing such a large number of votes would make any politician reluctant to change the system. In addition, it could mean losing favor even with those that do not directly receive benefits. If a close friend or family member receives benefits, the politician runs the risk of losing their vote too. Advocating for more benefits makes the politician seem empathetic and generous, even if it is generosity with someone else's money. The problem once again revolves around how objectively the constituency chooses to evaluate proposals. Thank you so much for listening to the Economic Review. We'll be back soon with the latest.